0: to the Gospel of Mark, we come to Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. Before we hear God's precious Word read, let us go to the Lord asking for His help in understanding this text, in feeling this text, applying this text to our lives. Your commandment, O Lord, is pure. Use it now to enlighten our eyes, we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of God. Mark 13, or 14, verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and he said to them, "My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here, and watch and pray." And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, "Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will." And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, "Simon." The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When you hear the word prayer, perhaps many different thoughts come to mind. Prayer, after all, comes in every shape and size with various shades of orthodoxy. If you're like me, you've heard many prayers, you've prayed many prayers, many kinds of supplications, you've heard many petitions, many pleas to the Lord. I've heard people pray at length with all the passion that their hearts could muster. I've heard people pray with no less passion, but rather simply, help, Lord. That's all they could pray. I've heard people pray in in all sorts of tongues. I've heard people pray for God's will to be done. i even heard people pray humorously for what was so obviously not the will of God. I remember one time in chapel service, I heard a man pray that Chick-fil-A would be open on Sunday. And he joked that it was God's chicken, and, and so it, the store needed to be open. The worst service I'd ever been to began in an awful prayer like that. Prayer is essential. To the Christian life. Indeed, as, as Calvin said, it is the essence of faith. And truth be told, if there is one area that Christians know where they need to grow, it's prayer. Just, just be asked, how's your prayer life? And you know that you do not meet the standard. You're never going to say, oh, my prayer life is phenomenal. It's top-notch. It's excellent. I'm the best at praying. No, say, oh, oh, how I need to, to learn to pray more, to more, pray more faithfully, more fervently, to pray in greater compliance with the word of God. We all need to grow in a spiritual discipline of prayer. Something we see in this text. Another thing we see in this text is that no one prayed like Jesus Prayed. In this section of scripture, we we glimpse Jesus' prayer life in Gethsemane. In this garden, we see a transition in Jesus' posture on which our salvation hangs. He moves from being sorrowful to steadfast. He moves from being distressed to determined as he comes humbly, humbly, And boldly before his Father's throne of grace. We see in these words that agony is conquered and assurance is achieved through prayerful submission to the Father's will alone. I shudder to proceed in preaching on so sober a text. I've told a few people I've been dreading this moment because of the weightiness of the sorrow that was upon the breast of our Savior and my own inadequacy to bring that about, to communicate even just a semblance of his sorrow. There's no doubt words will surely fail to describe the agony that our Lord underwent that night. This is the third and final prayer that Jesus prays as recorded in the Gospel of Mark. That's not to say that Jesus only prayed three prayers. Each prayer is is prayed in the dark. Jesus never ceased to pray. He was always praying. He He was always looking for an opportunity to be with the Father in prayer. So, what Mark is telling us through these three prayers is that prayer punctuated the ministry of Jesus. His first prayer is recorded in, in Mark 1:35. This is at the start of Jesus' public ministry. And he is surrounded by the darkness of demons. Jesus steals away to a desolate place, and there he prays to his Father. In Mark 6, there's a second prayer. This is in the middle of Jesus' ministry. He's surrounded by the darkness of chaotic waters. Jesus takes leave of his disciples, and he goes up on a mountain, and he prays at night in the dark. And here, this third prayer, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he is surrounded by the darkness of the night and by the darkened hearts of Judas and his new friends, Closing in on him, Jesus now departs from his disciples for a time that he might pray to his ever-faithful Father. From start to finish, Jesus prayed. His ministry, his, his whole life, his whole posture was one of prayer. And so when we read verses 33 and 34 in progression, we see, just how this unfolded. Jesus first takes leave of, his, of eight of his disciples. Now remember, D- Judas is gone at this point. Judas is looking for the opportunity and bringing the people to, to arrest Jesus. So Jesus leaves eight of his disciples, probably at the, at the gate at the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he walks a little further in, in Gethsemane and then takes leave of The top three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Now, before we see Jesus alone, Mark wants us to see in this whole account the abasement of Jesus, the utter humiliation of Christ in the light of his previous manifestation of glory. You'll remember the last time that Jesus in this gospel brings these three, Peter, James, and John, He leads them up on a high mountain where he was transfigured. This was back in Mark 9. It was then and it was there that these three glimpsed the glorious Son of God, the brightness of his being, just a taste of the beatific vision, a taste of the resurrected body of Christ, something that they will have as well. But now we're led to a low point where a dark garden veils the sun's refulgence. And so we are reminded again, dear ones, that the road to glorification is humiliation. You do not get glorification without suffering, without humiliation, without being brought low, without being abased. Oh yes, one day we will be glorified. But we don't get to that point until we suffer. So Paul says, provided that we suffer, that's what happened with the Son. Yes, he will be glorified. Yes, his body will be raised from the dead. But first, he suffers. He suffers all the more here in this garden. And this humiliation is seen. In part by the son's sorrowful soul and by his crestfallen countenance as he's bowed before his father. In verse 34, again, we read, And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch and pray. He confesses to his disciples what he will soon confess to his father in heaven. He's very Sorrowful, even unto death. Now, the sense of this word, very sorrowful, can, can be seen by contrasting it with how the word is used elsewhere in Mark and Luke. Er, earlier in Mark's gospel, Mark 6, King Herod was exceedingly sorry to hear of John the Baptist's fate. But you'll remember that he was not sorry enough to be A real man to be the real king and not to be swayed by his wife or his royal guests, and simply allowed John the Baptist to be killed. His was not a sorrow that led to repentance. Or in Luke 18, the rich young ruler left Jesus very sad. Why? Because he had a lot of money. And the Lord was challenging his allegiance. His sorrow was not one that led to repentance, to abandon all for Jesus, to leave everything behind, to take up his cross and to follow Christ. His sorrow was not a real sorrow, a God given sorrow. Or in Mark 14, just a handful of verses before our text, in verse 19, the disciples. Remember, when they heard the news that one of them would betray Jesus, they were sorrowful. They began to be very sorrowful and asked, Is it I? Am I the one to betray you? But what are these sorrows compared to the sorrow of the Son? These are the same ones. These disciples are the same ones who, in just a few verses, are going to flee. One of whom is going to deny Jesus three times that he ever knew him. What is Herod's sorrow compared to the son's? What is this rich young ruler's sorrow compared to the sorrow of the son here in this garden? What's the disciple's sorrow? Pales comparison to what this man, our Lord and Savior, felt, experienced that night. No one has ever known in a basement like the sun. No one has known sorrow like his sorrow. Verse 33 says that he began began to be greatly distressed and troubled. We see, as we continue to, to peer into this garden, we see that his sorrow was awestruck, that he was greatly amazed. Now, the ESV has greatly distressed, but the King James has it better. He began to be sore amazed. This word is used for a marvel, an amazement. And I can't believe it. In Mark 9, the crowd, seeing Jesus, was greatly amazed what he was doing and that he was there, and they, they ran up and, and, and greeted him. In Mark 16, the women, the women at the empty tomb of Jesus were alarmed. They were greatly amazed that the tomb was empty, that Jesus wasn't there. They were marveling at what they had seen or what they had not seen. What lay before Jesus was quite the marvel. Something to look at, sore amazed, as he is staring into the cup. Jesus' shock was not from something that had happened, like, I can't believe that happened. It's the present prospect of wrath that is soon to come upon him. As he's staring deep into the cup, he is greatly amazed. He's marveling. What is this? This is foreign to me. He's troubled. Not only was he amazed, but he was troubled in his spirit. This word is used in Philippians 2 in reference to a friend to the Philippians by the name of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus loved the Philippians so much and he was distressed when he found out that they found out that he was sick and he was about to die. He was so worried that they were so worried that he was about to die. Here we have Jesus, the one who assured his disciples to take heart when they are troubled. Here we have Jesus, who is now troubled in spirit. And why? It isn't because these disciples were at death's doorstep. Because the wrath of the Father was approaching, was knocking on the door of Jesus. No one has been amazed like the Son. No one ever marveled like the Son. No one has ever been troubled in spirit like the Son has been troubled. The Son was unique In his solitude as well, as verse 34 shows, he he leaves the three behind. We must safeguard the unique fight of the sun in the garden of Gethsemane. Because some will refer to their own trials as their own Gethsemane. One poet aptly puts it, Joy is a partnership. Grief weeps alone. Many guests had Cana. Gethsemane, but one. Even with their good intentions, these disciples could not keep the Son company. Indeed, communion through prayer, not company, was what the Son was longing for. Some of you know what it's like to be in a crowded room, but to feel all alone. Didn't matter if his disciples were even there. He would still feel alone. These same men who were just moments away from scattering. These were his students, his disciples. They were not the ones that he rested. They reposed his breast upon. It was his father, whose will he always came to do. whose presence he couldn't get enough of. He was the one that he wanted to reach through prayer. Being alone might be, the, might be the harsh desire of some of us, but lasting loneliness is to be shunned by all. We were made to commune with our God. And that's exactly what prayer is. So as this son walks deeper and deeper into the garden, he does so waging war. According to Luke, an angel ministers strength to him. But not even angelic assistance could remove the agony that distressed our Savior's soul. No one has been alone like the Son. He issues a command. He issued this command three times to his disciples. We see one of them in verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Three times he told the disciples to stay and pray. We don't have to look far to, to, to know the connection between what he had already said in the previous chapter. Be on your guard. Stay awake. Keep awake and pray. Make sure, disciples, that you are not found asleep said this over and over again to them in the previous chapter. Be watchful. Be prayerful. Sometimes a a teenager will roll his eyes after hearing his his parents say the same thing over and over. Okay, Dad, yes, I get it. I know that I need to be careful on the Internet. Yes, how many times do you need to tell me? Yes, I know, Mom, what time my curfew is. Do you need to tell me every single day? I get it. What do you do you not trust me, Mom? Do you not trust me, Dad? Over and over, why do you keep pestering me with this? Do you think I'm going to suddenly forget? Well, if these disciples could be told on a Tuesday a half dozen times to be on their guard, and then fall asleep and fail to keep watch just a couple days later, then yes, I think a reminder bears. Being made. Yes, you might forget. And this is the greater command. Be watchful. The Holy Spirit indeed is willing, but your flesh indeed is weak. Is it any wonder why the great themes of Scripture are everywhere repeated? Praise be to God that we don't have simply a single verse that speaks of his grace. Or one verse that speaks of our sinfulness, or of his sovereignty, of, of his plan, of the riches that are found in Christ. But everywhere in Scripture, it doesn't matter where you go, it's all there. God reigns. Man is a sinner, and Christ redeems through the power of the Spirit. Over and over, they are reminded these wonderful themes on which our salvation hangs. And here is a simple command from their teacher that they have failed to keep. We are reminded over and over that salvation must come. If it is to come at all, it must come from Christ, Christ alone. We see in verses 35 And 36, a plea to Abba, Father. Going a little farther, he he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This truth that there is salvation in Christ alone makes this plea of his rather perplexing. He's, he falls to the ground. The Lamb of God can can barely stand as he's walking deeper and deeper into the valley of the shadow of death. This language that Mark uses is that connotes this idea that Jesus is continually falling, praying, again and again. Maybe as he gets up, he just falls back down. Even his praying posture shows his humiliation. He gets lower and lower. He's praying and praying. This is a continuous plea, but at the same time it's it's confusing. We hear this this plea of the Father from a distressed, from an amazed spirit, and we wonder how can Jesus appear to pray against the will of the Father? Can this prayer be harmonized with the Son's divine nature? Can this prayer be harmonized with the Son's mission to the world? Isn't this why he he came? Isn't this what he said to to many in the Gospel of John? I came to do the will of my Father. My food, my bread is to do the will of my Father. And even in John 12, he says, My my spirit is troubled, and what shall I say? Save me from this hour? No. No. And, but the son, he sees this cup. He is repelled by it. The sinless and righteous son is averse to the wrath of the father. Get this out of my sight. Remove this cup from me. That is the righteous impulse of the son. That is the way to respond. When the cup of wrath is before you. Get this cup out of here. I don't want it. Move it away, Father. What is this cup? But but the, the wrath. The horrific wrath of God. That makes one marvel. That makes one be sore amazed. That makes one distressed in spirit. We see in Psalm 75, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This cup is not for the sun. This cup is for the wicked. The wicked will receive this cup. They will drink it. The tormentors will drink it. The oppressors, not the righteous. Remove this cup from me. Or as we read in Isaiah 51, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors. The cup of wrath is given to them. And then it is taken away from them, but it is taken away only after they have drunk it down to the dregs. And even that was just a foretaste of what would befall the tormentors. All those who do not find salvation in the Lord alone. That is what awaits everyone who is not in Christ. This is not just any cup. This is a cup that Jesus speaks about earlier in Mark 10, verse 38. Remember when James and John come to him and they say, Teacher, let us be at your right and left hand. When you're raised, when you're in your glory, let us be at either side of you. And Jesus, you remember, he says to them, Are you able to drink the cup that I am going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they boldly say, Yes, we are able how dare you say that? No, you're not able. You can't drink this cup. If you could, I wouldn't be here. That is what Jesus is saying. This is the wrath of God. No one will drink it. No one can drink it except the Son of God. Remove this cup from me. Let this hour pass from me. You see his distressed spirit. See how he's sorrowful. You can see how he, is righteous, would be repelled by this. Get this out of my sight. He dreads this cup because of the wrath that is in it. Remember, dear ones, that this cross was inevitable, but it was no less hard. You can't say, oh, he's just dipping into his divinity and he's got this. This is simple, easy as cake. It's pie. He's just got it. struggle with this cup comes from his sinless human nature, he cannot fathom the full wrath of his heavenly Father poured out upon him. And praise be to God that you cannot fathom it either. Who would not shudder at this doom of wrath? Whose spirit would not be distressed at the sight of the wrath of God? Who would not marvel only the proud who boast in themselves? You do not really see what's going on here. You get a taste of this as well in, in John 11, when when Lazarus, his beloved friend, had died, and before Jesus raises him from the dead, Jesus is angry, and we know that the, the text: Jesus wept; he burst into tears. He's also angry. He's indignant at the havoc that death wreaks on humanity. And then he shows that he is the resurrection and the life. Of course, he's going to shudder at the wrath of God. If possible, let this hour pass. Take this cup away. Jesus' faith affirms that all things are possible with the Father. The son's prayer did not shortchange his father's prayer, his, his father's power, as our prayers so often do. We don't pray with the kind of faith that Jesus prays. This, phase, this, this, this phrase, "if it were possible," is used in the previous chapter, just one other time in Mark's Gospel, in, in chapter thirteen, verse twenty-two. Jesus says that false Christs would perform signs to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But you remember, since we went through that text, you'll remember that it's impossible. It's impossible that the elect would be led astray. Not because of how good the elect are, but because the Father will shorten the days for the sake of the elect. So no, it is not possible, elect ones, to be led astray, to be condemned forever. But neither is it possible for this cup to be removed from the son for this hour to pass from him without drinking the fullness of the cup it must be drunk and the son knows this that's why he says nevertheless not my will be done but yours not what i will but what you will he knows it is not the father's will and that's why he negates it what a savior we worship who submits to his Father's will perfectly. At every point, at every turn, he is, his will submitted to the Father's will. I've come to do my Father's will, not my own will. Him I obey. And yes, that means even now in this garden, sight of the wrath. And we know that the Father heard him in Luke 22, it says the father sent his son an angel to strengthen his agonizing prayers. Not to remove the agony, to pacify the agony, but to strengthen the prayers of agony. And in Hebrews 5, 7, it says Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. The father heard the son because the son was Father, because, fa- because the father... Loves the son. And the son loves the father. And the son will do what the father has sent him to do. Jesus prays again and again. And he pleads with his disciples again and again. But though the father heard his son, he was silent. Parents know what it's like to hear their children to know what their pleas are, and not to respond. Certainly not to respond the way that their their children want them to respond. One commentator says, Father and son are in this together. The son will go willingly to his death at the father's command. The father will lovingly restrain his rescuing hand and allow his son to suffer it. The many will find their impossible possibility through this great act. Out of love for the Son, the Father doesn't rescue the Son. As the Son is saying, Father, move this cup away. Move it farther and farther away from me. The Father doesn't use his omnipotent hand to cast that cup away forevermore, but to bring it to the Son's lips, closer and closer you will drink this. You must drink this. The Lord asked his disciples again and again to stay awake and to pray, but they couldn't. Again and again, his closest friends have failed him. And the son asked his father again and again for the removal of the cup, for the passing of the hour. He who told us to ask and it will be given had the cup of wrath given him. He who told us to seek and we will find sought the Father and found silence. He who told us to knock and it will be opened unto us had death's door opened to him. No one has pleaded with his friends like the Son did his. No one has pleaded with the Father like the Son has pleaded with the Father. No one has been in agony like the Son and that means good news for you his agony means that he is the sympathetic high priest for you john calvin says if if he had not in his own person felt the fears doubts and torments which we endure he would not be ready as he now is to show us pity oftentimes if you're struggling with something another person expresses sorrow Say, oh, you don't know what it's like. You don't know the trial I've, I've undergone. You don't know what I'm experiencing. So you can't relate. Well, you, O sufferer, have no idea what your Savior suffered. And that means he can relate to you. And that means he is your sympathetic high priest. Your suffering, as great as it is, light, and momentary affliction. As awful as it is, nothing compared to the agony that our Savior experienced. Which means He can bring your little sufferings to His Father, and He can sympathize with you in your weakness. He knows. Your fears. He knows the torments of your soul. His agony means that he has spared you eternal agony. What does, what does mom tell her sick child that she's, she's handed a small cup of medicine to? You must, you must drink all of it if you want to feel better, dear one. All of it, mom? The whole cup? Yes, all of it. If you want to feel better, drink it all. Here, the Father, in effect, is saying silently to his son, you are to drink all of this cup if my children are to be better, if they are to become righteous. Drink it all, son. If there's any wrath left over that's not drunk, that's upon us, Christ consumes it all. He drank the cup so that we would not have to. He went through it all that we don't have to spend an eternity in hell under the wrath of God. And his agony serves as a model for us when we are weak, when we are tempted. We know what it's like to be tempted. Usually it's because of our own sin, and that's not. Jesus doesn't relate in that way. He was not tempted to sin From his own person, he had no inclination, though he was tempted from without to deny the the Father's will. He knows what it's what it means to be weak. Because he's gone before you, he then calls you. He says, "When you when you're weak, which is always. When you're tempted, which is daily, come, come to my throne." there's grace to be found i won't fail you i showed it in the garden i didn't fail you come plead your case express your sorrow oh i know what it's like to be sorrowful express your marvel i know what it's like to be, to marvel come oh how words have failed describe the agony that our Lord underwent that night. But words fail also to describe the love that our Lord showed his Father and us that night. Verses 41 and 42, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He finds them asleep over and over again. Despite the calls to stay awake, finds them asleep. And the language here is essentially, are you going to sleep forever? Are you going to sleep until the end of time? Nap time is over, guys. The betrayer is now at hand to hand Jesus over into the hands of Sinners. And the sun shudders no longer. He is no longer distressed in spirit. He is no longer trembling. He's no longer low. Though he has that cross to be hung upon. He's determined. Because as the psalmist says, he has quieted his soul, like, like a weaned child in his mother's breast. So sits the Son. His soul is quieted. He is at peace because the Father has has preserved his peace, his soul. Now he's a perfect rest. He's steadfast, he's ready to go. The battle for the soul of our Savior was won in that garden through prayer. We see, of course, the prayerlessness of these disciples. Have you tried praying for an hour? It's pretty difficult. Especially if you're not guided by, say, a psalm, some, some scripture. It's pretty difficult. If you're just using the stuff in your mind, easily distracted. Easily tempted to do other things, to, to perform other tasks. And we're like these disciples. We, we can't even pray for just an hour. Kelvin says... Three of the disciples, the cream of them all, fell asleep like miserable beasts. Just like poor animals, just dog-tired, and they can't even get up. Some of us know, perhaps a lot of us here know, what it's like to be without sleep. Especially if you had a child, a newborn child. And you wonder how, how you'll even get through that night. Or maybe you're, you've been in the field and you only had one hour of sleep over three days. You know the heaviness that's upon your body. No doubt the disciples were, were heavy with sleep. It was, the, it was in the night. It's not, in t- it's not when they were designed to stay awake. But even just, a, just an hour, you can't stay up to pray for your teacher. Pray for your rabbi, your your lord, your master, your savior. But in Jesus' case, the, the hour was so great, the stress so severe, that he couldn't sleep. He had to pray. That was where he needed to be. That was what he needed to do. This is what makes Jesus the better, the last Adam. Adam rejected the will of God but Jesus has accepted the will of his father. Adam tries to hide in the garden, but the son now steps forward to meet his enemy. Adam died spiritually, but survived physically, whereas the son will die physically and survive spiritually. His soul will not be abandoned to Sheol. Adam rebelled. He ushered death into the world. But the Son obeys and ushers eternal life now into the world. It is this prayer in this garden that bridges the gap between the Garden of Eden and the eternal garden, Revelation. Without this prayer, without this success in suffering, we don't get that garden. We don't get that lasting city, that eternity with Father, Son, and Spirit. Thanks be to the Son for His prayer in this garden. Calvin says, we see the inestimable love he bore us when faced with such a dreadful death, he willingly yielded to it. But supposing he felt no repugnance and without a word of protest, sipped the cup and found no bitterness in it. What would it mean to have redeemed us like that? He loved us to allow the entire storm to break on him. Can you imagine if Jesus just came down and said, like, yep, all right, got it. You're all saved now. The son was truly human. The son shudders at the sight of the wrath of God and doesn't just shudder at it, but says, okay, bring it upon me. Words have failed to describe the love the son showed his father and the son showed us that night. We truly do not know how great we have it. And his assurance and his prayerfulness mean so much for us. His assurance in the Father's will means our assurance in God's will. Come what may, our Father is faithful and he loves us. Whatever you experience on earth will not be to the degree that the Son experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if the father was faithful to his son, surely he'll be faithful to you. The son was assured of the father's power. The son was assured of the father's love. The son was assured of the father's uh, fellowship. He He knew his father would hear him. Sometimes our God will restrain his rescuing hand from us for his glory and for your good. May we say, with the Son, not my will be done, but yours, God. I don't have the full picture, but you do, Lord. In fact, you've planned it all for your glory and my good. I don't understand it, but I I trust you. And his prayerfulness of the Father spurs us on to keep praying. Pray that you would not enter into temptation, as the Son says. Pray like you need prayer more than you need sleep. Pray in perseverance. Continue to pray. Always asking, always seeking, always knocking. Persevere. I know the temptation will be for you to to avoid problems by napping like these disciples. It's a temptation of mine. When there's a conflict, there's a problem, just go to sleep. But when I wake up, it's right there. Avoidance is not the answer. Filling our our hearts with the truth of God's Word, praying that truth back to the Lord, that's the answer. Persevere in prayer and pray humbly with the knowledge that the Father loves you, and pray with confidence. Through Christ's victorious prayers, you will receive grace. He went before you, and he is in heaven right now, interceding for you as you pray to him. Let's pray. Your precepts, O oh Lord, are right. Use them now to rejoice our hearts. This week, we pray. Amen.